0: The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Some of you may remember this. Uh, In 2011, there was a devastating tornado that smoked through Joplin, Missouri. Uh, It was a huge storm. It, It was... Uh, It left a a devastating path about a mile wide of homes that had been turned into heaps of mortar and wood. It killed 158 people and caused not only the tremendous heartache of those losses, but $2.8 billion worth of damage in property. In that season, Joplin, Missouri... The people were just shocked. The the city was in shambles. How something so terrifying could happen. And as you would survey, uh, you could watch the news, and the, the news people would survey the streets, and you would see rubble heap after rubble heap. You could sense the devastation, and there was even a, a shot of the high school. The, the, there was a sign outside the high school that said Joplin High School, and, and some of the letters of Joplin had been pulled off by the wind, so all that was left was the OP. Now, I think there's a misconception with the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is to think that the book of Ecclesiastes is a lot like this devastating tornado that can sweep through the Bible. It's, it's one of those books that a lot of people try to avoid because it, it brings you to the reality of the condition of this world, that there is this fallen world that we live in. It can be depressing, and even some may, may resort to a fatalistic worldview just taking a survey of this. But I think as we've made our way through Ecclesiastes, I have hope that you've seen that that's not the case. In reality, Ecclesiastes is like the person who stood amidst the rubble of Joplin, who looked at that sign with the O and the P and decided to write an H and an E to fill out the word. I've got a photo of it to spell hope. That amidst the rubble, there is still hope. This is the view that the preacher has brought in. In, in, in. Taking account all the futility of the fallen world, there is still something here. And today we end our journey through the, through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been surveying the rubble of this world and how to navigate it. Now for some of us, it's been an uncomfortable journey. It's been like uh, taking a bumpy bus ride with a full bladder, right? You just, you just want that thing to be over with. Get us to the next gas station. Because the preacher who has basically been narrating for us, providing wisdom after wisdom, he, he's been drawing our attention to the dark corners of our life under the sun that we oftentimes would rather ignore. He's pointing out the injustice and the grief, the dissatisfaction, the futility of the world, and death, death's swift approach. Now, all of this, you would imagine, would threaten our well-being. It would threaten the fullness of life that we can experience. But the preacher isn't trying to immobilize us with fear. He's not trying to stunt us where we are and and take this fatalistic viewpoint. In fact, the preacher is trying to motivate or mobilize God's people toward living a robust life of fearing God. Now, to live this kind of a life, we must develop develop the skill set to swat away the empty promises of the vapor of work, pleasure, legacy, knowledge, and prosperity. Things that tend to function as a smokescreen, keeping us from the things that are really of meaning and significance and value. Things that really deliver true and lasting joy. Now the good news is that if you're willing to endure the bumpy bus ride, you'll find yourself with a view of life that is loaded with beauty, and with truth. As if we're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon at sunrise, seeing the colors and the clay mixing together in just an astonishing view. But rather than looking at what's under the sun and the beauty that's here, what what Ecclesiastes, what the preacher is trying to do is draw our eyes beyond the sun to see the fountainhead of beauty where the truth and the goodness and the beauty all come from. He's trying to show us who God is and how his beauty permeates this fallen world and his beauty is at work to beautify what's already been broken. And so it's with an accurate vision that we inherit from the preacher where we can see God for who he is and as we see God for who he is, we can start to make sense of this world and learn how to navigate it. What I found in the last 12 weeks of this sermon series of going through Ecclesiastes, and this is not, a, this is not a testament to my preaching, but the goodness of God in his word, that I'm learning how to be more human. I'm I'm gaining a better understanding of what it means to take the the good and the bad, to to enjoy the simple things like food and drink, sunshine, art and laughter, to rejoice in my family and the work that God's given me to do, while protesting the evil and the sorrow and the inevitable arrival of death by living honestly and living fiercely. A big part of learning how to be more human is learning that the good stuff in life points to something that's better. And when you can see what it is that's better, the bad stuff of life doesn't seem so threatening. Now we are coming to the last chunk of this passage and really the passage can be broken up into two parts. The first part is, is the preacher's closing remarks for us. And he's going to target the young people. So if you consider yourself a young person, young at heart, this is up your alley today. But part two is summarizing the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Now I wish, as I was studying this week and, and preparing I wish that I would have been able, I've probably heard some of these lessons, but I wish I would have been able to grab on to what the preacher is saying when I was 15 or 16 years old. Because if you're able to to wrestle with this and grab hold of it, this information that he's handing off can save you from troubles later on in life. And to sum up what the preacher is saying, he's giving us two R's. He's saying, rejoice, rejoice, And remember, let's take a look at at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11. He says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Now, doctors, We'll talk about the importance of being out in the sun, right? You've got to get your vitamin D. It helps your your body function as it ought to. You get a nice little tan. Um, But the preacher says it's even simpler than that. It is light is sweet. It is good to see the sun because if you can see the sun, it means that you are alive and not yet in the grave. If you can see the sun even on a cloudy day, even on a bad day, then you have reason for rejoicing. And this is true of both young people and of older people. Young people can rejoice because of the pending days, the days that are on the horizon that are coming your way. And those who are older and more seasoned can rejoice because of the days that they've accumulated. But there's also... This idea that today is worth rejoicing over. In Psalm 118, the psalmist says, This is the day the Lord has made. My grandma Enid used to have the song that we'd sing all the You know, maybe you've heard it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has. You know, but this is the day. Psalm 118, straight from Scripture, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that kind of works out if today's a good day, Right? It's easy to rejoice uh, with the good days. We party on birthdays and we celebrate promotions and anniversaries. But the question is, in light of the reality of the fallen world and the circumstances that we find in, how do we rejoice when the good and the bad are mixed together? I think of my friend. This is a perfect example of this. My friend who, on his wedding day, supposed to be one of the most joyous days of his life, His mother passes away. How how do you rejoice in a day like that? Or or even in in a season where it's just all hard, heavy things that ought to be mourned over. We think of of the season, the time of mourning that the preacher had appointed in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Whether that's a death of a loved one, you've been fired from your job. Maybe you're in, in financial troubles You're in the midst of a really tough season of parenting. Your kids are rebelling. Or maybe it's even your health. A recent cancer diagnosis. Now, a socially acceptable response to a season, to a day like that, would be to get angry. Just get mad. Shake your fist at somebody, or even maybe it's God get angry, or, or succumb to worry and to fear. You either have to try to bear down and control the situation and manipulate things, or you just pretend like it doesn't exist. You ignore it altogether. But the preacher tells us to take a different approach. He, he commands us to rejoice in all the days, not just the good ones, but the good and the bad. But what he's not saying here is to sweep things under the rug. He's not saying to to pretend that everything is all good, right? especially if the circumstances are not that way. It's it's not a charge to be aloof to reality or or to to just be ignorant to the situation. That, That would be negligent optimism. But if you live honestly, if you experience life as it comes, as God deals it for you, you'll experience an array of emotions, to varying degrees, which may happen simultaneously. Right? It's kind of a weird experience. Nobody, nothing is singular. Emotions are are all happening at the same time on sort of a ranging scale. And so it could be the happiest day of your life also mixed with one of the saddest days of your life. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians 6, he, 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 he acknowledges this. He says that, that the Christians that he's living life with, there's a sense where they're... They're always sorrowful. Like they're just in a season of sorrow. They're being persecuted. There's bad things happening just in the normal grind of life. But he says we're sorrowful but always rejoicing. Now there's a common theme here between the preacher and the Apostle Paul that helps them, the key to to always rejoicing. And as counterintuitive as it may seem, this key is to remember death. The key to rejoicing always is to remember death. The preacher says to remember that death is coming some point in time. It's going to come. It's going to catch up to you. And so it's not here yet, so make an intentional decision to enjoy life as you have it before death comes up. Now that. I think that's true. But if we, if we gain a gospel perspective, if we understand the gospel, what Jesus has done is life, death, and resurrection, this gets transformed a little bit. Because now we don't just rejoice because someday death is gonna come and we got life now. We rejoice because death and darkness have been conquered for us. We know now In 2018, what the preacher didn't know about God's redemptive plan, what God's plan for death was. And so faith in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection means for us that we can rejoice in any situation because this is not how things will always be. You know, everyday rejoicing, the ability to do this every day is evidence that we understand the gospel, especially when our circumstances tell us to do otherwise. Personally, I'm skeptical of Christians who have this disdain for life that leaves a perpetual scowl on their face. I grew up in a a small Lutheran church. I have a picture of a lady that was always angry at me for I don't know why. I probably did a lot of stupid stuff. Or, or, Or the guy who was always upset, you know. Christian, I'm skeptical of Christians who are like that, that are just, have this disposition of of displeasure always. But I'm also skeptical of non-Christians who naively rejoice in this life because it seems dishonest to the reality of suffering that they are probably experiencing. Now, both of these people the grumpy Christian and the naively rejoicing non-Christian are failing to remember death. The naively optimistic non-Christian forgets the injustice of death and suffering. Where we should be protesting, they're preoccupying themselves with rejoicing. The grumpy Christian forgets what Jesus did to conquer and to reverse the curse of sin and death. So, it is a distinct ability of gospel believing, born again Christians to honestly look at the bad days for what they are, to feel the gravity of those days and still have an abounding hope that trumps the tragedy of the day with the joy of Christ. See, for Christians, this is as bad as it gets. No matter how bad it gets, this is as bad as it gets. And no matter how bad it gets, Jesus is here with us, carrying us and sustaining us. And this is a cause for hope. A sure hope that leads to rejoicing. And this is the only way that you can explain how the Apostle Paul says, We are sorrowful, we're burdened, but we're always rejoicing because the joy of Christ trumps the sorrow of this life. So we see this pattern of rejoicing and remembering. And this pattern, the preacher turns the corner here, is going to show us that this ought to be instilled in our youth. Because learning how to rejoice and remember begins at a young age. And so here we are. The preacher contextualizes this pattern for the kids, and he, he wants us to listen up. He wants you to be set on the right path so that you can live an abundant and full life. And so in verse 9 of chapter 11, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, I remember always as a kid when I was, you know, 11, 10, 11, always wanting to be older, right? Always wanting to hit the next milestone. You want to be 16 because that means you can drive. And then you want to be 18 because then you can go buy Swisher sweets. And then you want to be 21 because then you can drink. There's a sense where you're just always kind of looking forward to the next thing where you're not quite satisfied in the youth that you have in the moment. And us and older folks will look back and say, that's, that's a shame, right? I'd give anything to go back to that. But there's a sense where we always want to to have the next season. And and if we're constantly living, looking forward, we'll forget to enjoy this unique season that God has come with us, has has given us in this season. Because the more life that comes, the more responsibilities and burdens pile up. So for this season, if, if you are in that sort of 20 and under range, there, this is an appropriate season for you to live in your mom's basement. Right? This is an appropriate season for you to enjoy some of the leisure that comes with childhood. But guess what? Th- there's going to be a time where that expires, right? You get past your 20 and it's no longer cool for you to stay at home with mom. So take time now while you have it to enjoy your youth. You, you don't have bills to pay. You don't have any student loans to to chip away at. You don't have any heavily demanding jobs or kids to take care of. So be glad in this season. Let your heart cheer that you have more life ahead of you than you do behind you. And as you're rejoicing in your youth, use your youth. Do things that you enjoy now Here's the disclaimer. Do things you enjoy without neglecting whatever small responsibilities you currently have as a family member, as a student, whatever, whatever you're picking up here and there. Enjoy your youth. Play hard. Sweat and strain your body. Go hiking and explore. Be creative. Read and learn. Expend your youth. But as you do this, realize this, that your youth isn't about you and just because you're young doesn't mean that you live for your own entertainment I think one of the popular refrains in my household growing up was this this mom I'm bored you know it's okay when boredom kicks in that's where real adventure begins but as you're, uh, as, you're, as you're beginning adventure, know that, that your youth is not just about entertainment. Your youth is about learning how to glorify God in whatever you do. And know this, that th- there's no age limit on, on, on having a meaningful relationship with God. You don't have to experience something in life. You don't have to have a certain numerical threshold before you can really hunker down in who God is and what he has done for you. Jesus, as he was doing his ministry across Galilee, he was pulling kids upon his lap as he was teaching. Jesus made time for the kids. And Jesus is making time for you. And right now, in your youth, is a time to grow that relationship, even if it's clumsily, to learn who God is, to learn who, who God has made you to be, and to learn how to be used by God. Now, I think this, is, this feeds right into the next part where, in verse 9, the second part of verse 9 says, to walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Now, if, if you misunderstand this verse, this could be uh, a terrible for you. I'm currently aware of how deceitful my heart can be, but as a teenager, I was ignorant to the intensity of its, my heart's deceit and its foolishness. There's a sense where telling a kid to follow their own heart could sound like a go-ahead to do whatever you feel like. But I assure you that's not the case. That, that would be the opposite of wisdom, which is what the preacher is trying to hand down to us. What the preacher is saying here is discover how God has wired you. Discover how God has uniquely gifted you. Discover how the vantage point, how you see things that God has gifted you with. Learn what makes you tick. Learn what gives you joy and satisfaction, the work that you like to busy your hands with. What skills do you have? What excites you? To walk in the ways of your own heart is to understand these things, to start learning or exploring. But to walk in the ways of your heart, you must walk in the ways of your own heart. Don't waste time trying to be somebody you're not. Don't waste time trying to be a copycat of somebody else. God has uniquely gifted and created you. Learn to embrace that. So there's freedom there. There's permission to explore and adventure and to to gain uh, experience. But just as soon as the preacher gives you some permission to run free and and to test your limits and to to enjoy the season that's before you, he reminds you that you're still on a leash, so to speak. Verse 9 says, But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Now, he's not saying this to scare you. What he's saying here, he's trying to help you realize your place. That you aren't your own. That you belong to God. And he has parameters that will help you thrive and enjoy life to the max. And so here in your youth, there's an opportunity to learn how to yield to God By embracing the season of youth and rejecting evil, which is his next command here in verse 10, where he says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, if you learn to earnestly find joy at the end of God's leash, your desire for doing evil will shrink. There are a lot of evil things in this world that are trying to tell you to cut the leash of God, right? Unbound yourself from God and you'll you'll experience all the fun and the joy and whatever you want in life. You can run free. There's all kinds of evil things. Pornography, distorted sex, drugs, rebellion against loving authority, laziness, ingratitude. All of these things are saying, cut the cord, cut the cord. But they don't tell you that when you cut the cord to those things, to God, and you live in those things, those things become your new master. And it's a new master that's crueler, demands more from you, and gives you a shorter leash. The New Testament talks about the slavery of sin, that if if we give into evil, evil will own us and control us. What God told Cain back in in Genesis when Cain killed his brother Abel, God is true of us now. When God says, sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you. So the preacher warns us, don't give the devil the chance to trap you. Separate yourself from what aims to harm you, what keeps you from enjoying the life that God has given you. Don't compound the difficulties of your life because there will be plenty of those difficulties along the way. And if you do this with the help of God and with godly friends and a a loving church family, in the context of a loving family, you will find enjoyment and gain even though your youth is fleeting. Because eventually you're going to grow up. And all the lessons that you could have or should have learned from your youth will need to be acted on. You'll become a big boy. And so in in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, I don't have time to go through all of them. But these chapters are, or these verses here, are a plea to remember that your youth itself is going to fade away at some point that your youth won't last forever you'll more than likely you'll get married you'll have kids you'll you'll age a bit you'll get some more wrinkles and then you're going to die the sun sets on your life things are going to break down doors will close you'll learn that there's going to be things that you can't do anymore this is basically what's happening in verses 1 through 6. This, this imagery of a, a household and of, a, of an estate that's breaking down and deteriorating. Housekeepers no longer can keep up. There's so much disrepair happening. The grinders stop grinding. They can't do it anymore. The strongmen are bent. The doors close. The windows are dimmed, probably with dirt. And finally, things just give out. The, the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is br- broken at the cistern. Things don't stay the way they are. There will be a day when there's more life behind you than there is ahead of you. And then verse seven says that on one day, your body, which was made of dust, In the Garden of Eden, when God was making man, he heaped up dust and blew life into the dust, making Adam, your body will return to the dust, and your spirit, verse 7 tells us, returns to God. Now right there, that is proof that your life is not your own. It does not belong to you. God gave you your life on loan. And then hopefully with a slightly more understanding... Uh, from having been through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, now we hear the preacher sing his refrain one last time. In verse eight, he says, "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity." After the preacher has laid it all out, he's considered all of the facets of life. He he still concludes that life is a mist that vanishes at dawn. That's his last nugget of wisdom for the kids, that your life is vapor. You are vapor. Enjoy it for what it is. And I would imagine, I'm just visualizing this here in my mind, that after the preacher writes that closing thought, he sets down his pen on his table, he takes a sip of his scotch, he inhales deeply, He steps out onto the patio to enjoy the sweetness of the sun, to hear kids playing in the distant background, and he enjoys another given moment, another moment that he did not deserve, a moment that he was not entitled to, a moment that God gave him. And he sits down at his dinner table, and he enjoys a New York strip. He, he takes a slice of peach pie with his supper. He emuls over the beauty of language through poetry. He goes to bed, he cuddles his wife, and he falls fast asleep, assured that the wisdom that he has has been imparted to others so that they can enjoy life the way God has taught him how to. And he does this day after day until one day his body eventually settles down into the dust and his spirit returns to God, where the preacher himself has arrived at death by living. That's a legacy. (laughs) Throughout all Ecclesiastes, we've been hearing from the preacher. It's been his voice for the majority of the book, with the exceptions of the very beginning of chapter one and the very end of chapter 12. And finally, we hear some closing thoughts, and it's a voice not from the preacher, it, it's this other character that we don't really know who it is, but I, I call him the archivist because he's collecting these, these wisdom uh, uh, writings from the preacher and giving uh, them to us to know and understand what the preacher's talking about. And so here in verse 9 and 10, the archivist gives, his, gives us his thoughts. He says in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now here the archivist is, is vouching for the preacher. He's attesting to his wisdom, his knowledge, his thoughtfulness and care and study in the matters of living the abundant life. The preacher has scoured for the right words. Not just the right words, but words of delight, not of pessimism. Finding the silver lining among the dullness of a fallen world. And he gives us what's true, what's upright. He doesn't doesn't provide us with lip service, trying to... You know, appease our desire for something happy and clappy and uplifting. he 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 acknowledges things for what they are, yet still there is things worth rejoicing over, and his truth is upright. This is wisdom for a life well lived. and then and then the archivist vouches for the content of the preacher in verse eleven. He says, "The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. He's saying that these words are a good guide for us. He uses this imagery of a shepherd. A goad is a shepherd's staff to direct and to lead the sheep of the flock. He's saying that these words are good for us. They're good guardrails for our life. He's saying they're like nails firmly fixed, that they're sturdy and dependable. I would imagine if, if he knew about screws, he probably would have said screws because screws are a little bit more sturdy than nails, but, but that wasn't the point. But He says it's sturdy, it, it's reliable, it's worthy of, uh, of putting your life on. And then he gives us a warning that we could spend our whole life Trying to make sense of things from other sources. There's, there's going to be an unlimited amount of books. Right, go to library. Go, I mean, go, go to any library and you'll just be amazed at how many books there are. And there's going to be book after book after book, book trying to tell you something. Maybe it's different. Maybe it's in cahoots with this. But there's going to be lots of books, and you can weary yourself trying to unpack it all. So he says, receive the wisdom that God has imparted through the preacher. Receive it. Meditate on it, implement it in your life, and teach it to others. Even if all you have to offer is two sentences, that's helpful, right? That's essentially what the archivist leaves us with here in verses 13 and 14. These are his only genuine thoughts to sum up the book. Now occasionally I find abandoned sermon notes uh, in the pews after you guys all leave on, on Sunday afternoons. I find some, you know, and it's helpful because I, I preach for 45 minutes and it's a little bit disappointing because because then I see pretty much everything I just said summed up in one sentence, which is good for you. I'm glad you got it, but I wonder if, you know. But basically what we're getting is the sermon notes of the archivist. He's taking the last 12 chapters, everything that the preacher has unpacked and, and told us about, and he's giving us The summary of it all. Here he says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's a summary Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, if you've been tracking with the preacher, fear and obedience is what should be embodied in your life. But let me clear this up. Fear isn't a matter of being terrified. It's not, not a matter of being scared. Though it, that could be an element. If you're pushing against God, there is reason to be fearful of that. But, but what he's talking about in being, uh, of fearing God is to be reverent, to know your place in relation to God. And even in this, in this little snippet of, of this section of scripture, there are three things that we, we can keep in mind that provoke us to awe. One, that God is creator. We sang about it this morning. What amazing songs, those first two, about God the creator, creates with beauty that's derivative of him, that he designed the world, that he knows how life works best, it's like an engineer knows his way around a piece of machinery that he invented, right? God knows the world and life. He knows how it's supposed to work. The other thing that is, God is eternal. See, our 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 souls, our bodies are gonna perish, and our souls are gonna return to God, but God doesn't go anywhere. God will be around for eternity. He's been around since eternity past. That our life cycles are going to come and go, but God stays. And the last thing that should provoke awe, reverence, is that God is judged. He, he reminded the youth of that. Remember, he's like, no, that God will judge all of these things. But here he says in verse 14 again that our lives will be assessed on how we live in light of the wisdom we have received. God is an impartial judge. He he judges fairly. There's no sliding scale here. There's no no curve. And when we understand who God is, what naturally happens, we we, we become reverent of who God is, and with a, a, a natural reverence, we become obedient to God. In fact, a lack of obedience in our life to God shows a lack of reverence that we don't understand God for who he is. But before you grimace at the thought of obedience, remember the things that the preacher has called us to to obey God in throughout the whole of Ecclesiastes. Obey God by trusting in God's provision. Obey God by eating and drinking with joy. Enjoy, obey God by loving your wife. Obey God by training your kids. Obey God by working hard. Obey God by playing, recreating. Obey God by making beautiful things. Obey God by resting. See, obedience to God isn't to deprive you of, of joy Obedience to God is meant to maximize your joy by embracing the vanity of life. To fear God and to obey him is the path to the most abundant and joyous life that you could possibly have. Not to mention the joy of life that comes afterward when we are with God in the new heavens, new earth but the reality is that we frequently veer off of that path of wisdom, of obedience, of reverence, and we dive into a path of self-interest. We we begin to revere ourselves, and in doing so, we forget God. See, I think this is a trend that if we are not diligent in training the youth or, or, or being watchful of ourselves, that we become experts in revering ourselves instead of God. We say it's, it's my life, it's my choices, it's about me. We become narcissistic and we develop the inability to see past our own nose. And nobody can be faulted for it because it's one of, nobody cannot be faulted for. It. Everybody can be faulted for it because this is one of the unavoidable tendencies of living in a world and and having a heart that is cursed and tainted by sin. Where God isn't revered, there will never be joyful obedience. Now, there might be begrudging obedience. There might be the the begrudging obedience to God, but it's still loaded in in self-focus because, uh, ah, fine, I'll do it, but I don't wanna do it. See, that kind of obedience misses the joys of life. So the the appeal, if we just simply say, you know what, we need to go out of here and we need to do a better job of obeying God, it's all in vain because at the end of that, if that's our mentality, it's all self-promoting. There's no reverence there. And so to break through the smog of self-interest, to get our attention off of ourselves and back on God, to revere him for who he is and, and realize who we are, God gives us more than just a book of wisdom. God gives us a truer, better shepherd than King Solomon, the preacher. He gives us Jesus, the man who is wisdom embodied in flesh. And he comes and he, and he doesn't just show us what it looks like to fear God and to obey, which he did do that. Jesus came and he says, whatever I do, whatever I say is what God has told me to do. And, and Jesus, he says, I can, Jesus lived the most joy-filled life out of any human in history because he was deeply satisfied in who God was. But Jesus didn't just give us an example of how to do this. Like, here's the mark that you gotta try to live up to. Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep because he says, I see that you can't do this well. Right, that if your life goes into the balance on its own, you will, the scales will be tipped in damnation, right? Your heart is sinful, your heart is corrupt. You're loaded with self-interest. And so what Jesus does instead, he stands in our place. He goes to the cross to atone, to pay for our sins. He goes and stands before God on our behalf so that as we stand before God, God doesn't see us and our failures and our successes. God sees Jesus and his righteousness applied to us through faith. That we receive Jesus' perfect record. That sins, sin, ignorance, folly has been removed from us and we are credited with everything that Christ has. So that when we go to the scale, the scale is tipped in our favor because Jesus was good enough for us. And seeing what Christ has done for us, we become more reverent of God. But not, not, not just reverent like he's, He's some God that's kind of distant from us. There's a reverence that's laced with love. It's because he first loved us that we love him back. And so we, we begin to love and to be reverent of who God is. We see his love for us in Christ. We see that God desires what's best for us, that he has made a, the good, abundant life available to us. And Jesus himself said that if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so we can see that the key to obedience is to first love God. And to love God, we must revere what he has done for us in the gospel. And all of this feeds into the chief end of man, which we've already heard this morning in our profession of faith, that the chief end of man it's very similar to verse 13. The chief head of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now the Lord's table is here for us this morning to stoke our reverence for God. It's to, to bring our eyes, to see tangible, uh, to physical things right before us, to remind us that Christ's blood was shed for us, that his body was broken for us so that ours wouldn't have to be broken, that when we stand before God, we are declared righteous. And as we revere God and see what he's done for us, it mobilizes us toward joyfully and lovingly obeying our God. Church, let's be a people. Let's be a people who are infatuated with the glory and splendor of God, the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. Let's be a people who, who spend our efforts day in and day out learning more about this. Uh, uh, not just knowing in our heads, but, but gaining experience in our heart of God's new mercies that come every day. And let us be a people who are obedient to God, who love him and follow through. Father, we thank you for Christ. That, that's why we're here this morning. You know, the preacher, his, what he has to share it's all good stuff, but if all we have is what the preacher tells us from Ecclesiastes, then we're still without hope, and you have delivered on hope that Jesus has come. He has saved sinners. He's saving sinners. So, Father, would you, would you strengthen us? Would you fortify us? Would you increase our affections for you and what you've done for us? And, Father, would you, would you send us out as people who are joyfully obedient, who, who love you and love the life you've given us?